All right, good morning. Does everybody feel way more spacious? Let's flip over to uh, Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> and uh, we'll get stuck in here. So we, if you recall from last week, if you're with us last week, uh, we started to look at uh, Barnabas. Remember, uh, you have a, a group of people, uh, Christians, uh, virtually almost all the Christians in Jerusalem, after Stephen is martyred, that this huge group of people goes out, and they begin to preach the gospel as they go, and they go all the way to Antioch. And remember, Antioch is about 300 miles north by northwest of Jerusalem, uh, and you can get there by ocean in a sense, or not by, by sea, more likely, and head up there, or it's about a 300-mile walk. So in Antioch, all of a sudden this church is born, and uh, word gets back to Jerusalem that this church has been born. Uh, I, I actually I forgot I left out that what happens is a few of the people that are moving out from Jerusalem, uh, they're only speaking to Jews. And we talked a lot about that last week and why uh, that would have happened. But when they get to Antioch, there's some of the brethren that they begin to talk to, the Hellenists, the Greek speakers. And so all of a sudden they begin speaking to the Greek speakers, they're giving the gospel, and people start getting saved. And if you recall, it said the hand of the Lord was with them. And so the idea there being his guiding, his power, his, all that, that God was moving in this work to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now we know that it's not going to be until years later that the church actually takes an official position that Gentiles can get saved. And that happens in Acts chapter 15. They kind of have a summit uh, and everybody gets together and says, okay, yes, they can get saved, and they make a letter and some different things like that. Uh, so once they realize that all these people are getting saved, they decide to send Barnabas. Um, Barnabas, as we talked about, he's mentioned in uh, Acts chapter 4 as, as somebody who uh, gave land. He was a Levite. He gave some, uh, sold some land, gave the money to the apostles, and then he's mentioned here, and he's mentioned a couple other places. But the, the church decides to send Barnabas uh, to Antioch to help them in, in kind of this church startup. So we'll read, and today we're just going to look at kind of the second half of Barnabas, what he did when he was there, uh, his philosophy of ministry, and maybe some stuff that we can adopt uh, in our own lives to help other people around us. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, uh, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen uh, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord." The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas uh, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And we'll stop there. So the interesting thing about Barnabas, he's, uh, and I mentioned it last week too, he's one of my favorite guys in the scripture. He's only mentioned three or four times um, in, the, in the entirety of the book of Acts. And then after he has uh, basically a dust-up with Paul, 
over bringing a certain person on a missionary trip. They kind of split ways, and he goes off on his missionary journey, and then the Scripture begins to follow Paul uh, through, through uh, the rest of the book of Acts. But even though that's the case, Barnabas is kind of a standout guy. It's interesting because if you go back to Acts chapter 4 and you read the account uh, of uh, Barnabas giving his uh, money to the apostles, what happens uh, is that there's, there's a lot of people that are doing that. There's, there's a ton of people that are giving money to the apostles. A lot of people in the church were doing it. But the interesting point is only three of them are named. You have Ananias and Sapphira, and they're named because there was a very awkward moment where they dropped dead. Uh, they lied to Peter, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and seemingly in a, um, I think probably a preliminary move, you have, it, this is still, for lack of a better term, it's the intertestinal, intertestamental period, just meaning that Judaism is coming to an end, and Christianity is taking its, its place, is replacing it. Does that make sense? So people are learning stuff. They don't have the Bible, they have... Uh, the Old Testament, they have the Torah, they have the history books, that kind of thing, but they're, they're learning new things. So remember, all this is taking place in the, the church, port, or excuse me, the temple portico. So, because uh, we, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, they die, and what that ends up being is essentially a testimony to everybody there. Does that make sense? Of the validity of Christianity. Um, and that's, that's a whole, uh, probably a teaching in itself. But they die, and they're noted for us through Luke, through the Holy Spirit, until Jesus comes back again, right? Now, the other one who's noted is Barnabas. And I think it's noteworthy, out of all the hundreds of people, or however many there were, that gave to the work, only Ananias and Sapphira and only Barnabas are named. And really, Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. We're told that right in Acts chapter 4. But the, the, I have to look at my paper because I can never pronounce it. But the, his name, Barnabas, his nickname is Paracalesis, which might sound familiar if you've ever dug into any of this. Because when, in John 14, where Jesus says, it's good for me to go away because if I go away, I'm going to send a comforter, that is the same root word. That word is Paracitos. So the idea is essentially that the Holy Spirit shares, or I should say Barnabas shares, the kind of an origin or what he's doing, who he is with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It's the same word. And it means literally to come alongside. Just like we, we have words with para, right? You have paratroopers. They're soldiers that parachute down to fight alongside of others. You have paramedics. There are people on an ambulance that operate on protocols that are written by a doctor to, to operate alongside of a doctor. So the, word, the prefix para just means to be alongside. And it's, it's to be a helper alongside is what they are. So Barnabas, it, it, by root, by name, by virtue of his nickname, is someone who the apostles recognized to be someone who is able to come alongside people and help them. And later on, this word is used a third time when it talks about him exhorting them. When he exhorted them, it, it uses the same root word. So this, the whole ministry of what's going on revolves around what the Holy Spirit was doing in the church and how Barnabas was responding to that. That's really valuable. We'll talk about that more later about who Barnabas is. But what made Barnabas a standout person, a person that, that the apostles... I mean, I don't know how long you have to hang out with people before you get a nickname. Sometimes not very long, yeah. right? Sometimes you can do something really bad or something that just really stands out, and like somehow overnight you, you get a nickname. But Barnabas, I don't think you get a nickname that is son of encouragement, somebody that we know always encourages. I don't think it happens overnight. 
But Barnabas, he's, lab- he's uh, uh, labeled that, he's named that, and he's known among the church as this person. And I think that it's important to note that that's what made him stand out. What made him stand out, and, what, and the church decides, and this is uh, noteworthy, that here's this church forming 300 miles away, 300 miles away where you kind of have Roman mail, you can get messages and stuff like that. It actually worked very similar to the Pony Express. But 300 miles away, that's hard to check on. That's hard to know what's going on. Somebody has to walk or sail 300 miles to give a report of what's happening. So obviously Barnabas is a very trusted person. And I think it's important to note that the whole basis for his ministry and the reason that they decide to send him to a new church is because he's a son of encouragement. His heart is to encourage people. Of all the nicknames we could have, of all the things that someone could notice about us and then label us with, May it be that. Be like, you know what, that person, they're a son of encouragement. Sometimes we think that our nickname, or sometimes we think that, like, that uh, we can be you know, uh, sin sniffers, or we can be you know, the one that labels, or we can be you know, the, the one that finds out. There's a, and that's fine, I guess. I don't, it doesn't seem to help that much. But, but when we can be someone to be known, that person encourages people. It seems to be that through the Holy Spirit, and through you know, what the church is doing here, that that's really what the Lord needs in his church today. And we talked about that last week. And that's what he's doing, and that's what happens with Barnabas. So he was a standout guy. But what I really wanted to look at today, honestly, is what did he do? So if we look at uh, verse 22, it says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So the first thing when Barnabas shows up is he observes something. He watches something. And what does he observe? It says he saw the grace of God excuse me, among them. What, is, what does it mean? How do I understand for myself and exercise to observe the grace of God among people? Because there's a lot of things we can observe among people, can't we? So the, the, as we mentioned before, we don't have uh, any details. I've never read any details. I've tried to hunt some down. Maybe one of the church fathers wrote something. But I don't have a lot of details about Antioch and what it was like for the church at the beginning. But there's a few things that we do know, and that is that anywhere where there's people, there's brokenness, right? Anywhere where you have groups of people that lump together and dialogue, there will be difficulties, even in our own relationships, have you ever noticed how hard it is just to communicate? Like just to have a discussion sometimes? Sometimes you can say something and you might have the best intent of your heart, but it's somehow received in this radically negative way. Or have you ever been having a talk with someone, it can be a spouse or whoever, a best friend or a stranger, and they say something to you and, and it's offensive and you're like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. And then they're like, no, I didn't, that's not what I meant at all. Because if I make a statement, if I say something out loud, even if we're looking each other in the face, when I make that statement, I'm making that statement through lens, a certain lens, right? It's my life experience. It's what I've, I've come to, to believe is appropriate or inappropriate. It's based on uh, where I was born, where I was raised. All those, you have all this context, all this culture, if you will, behind any statement that I make. But you, when you hear a statement, or when I hear a statement, I hear it through my own lens, right? I hear a statement through how I was raised, what I think is important, all those things. So even just daily communication 
sometimes can be extremely difficult. And then you have just culture and how things work. You know, one of the things that was shocking to me when I went to, Mark and I went to France and England to kind of work on some discipleship stuff. And when we were there, uh, one of the things that I learned was if you're sitting at the table, like you're, one, they like eat at like midnight, which was extremely disappointing for me. But uh, they, you know, you sit down and if your elbows aren't on the table, they don't talk to you. Right? So we have like little songs about elbows on the table. At kids camp, you get busted and have to like run around and sing a song, all that. If you don't have your elbows on the table, they don't talk to you. Because in that culture, it's, you, it's looked at like you don't care about what they have to say. Because you're just kind of sit back in your chair and you're eating. So they just figure you're not interested. Maybe you're sad, maybe you're mad, whatever, they're going to talk to you. But as soon as those bad boys are on the table and you're shoveling food in, you're all of a sudden part of the conversation. Another weird one, we went to, a, you know, we had a couple uh, Bible studies and stuff like that. When they come in, they greet every single person. So like in America, you come in, you're like, yo, and then you sit down somewhere, right? Get your hors d'oeuvres, whatever you're going to do, and that's socially acceptable. Nobody expects you or probably actually wants you to come up and greet every, how are you doing? I'm fine, just like the last 20 times I answered this question, right? So in our culture, you say, hi, how you doing? Shake some hands, you take your place. In France, they literally greet every single person. How are you doing? Mwah, mwah. I managed to avoid the bisou the entire time. I was like, I'm American, good to meet you. But... Uh, <laughs> You get the double kiss, right? And then, how are you? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And so coming to a, a dinner party or Bible study and leaving a dinner party or Bible study takes 45 minutes both times. Everything takes forever there. So it's a, it's a completely different culture, right? We, we, we interpret things differently. If you walk in and you don't greet people, you don't greet every single person, they take that as rudeness. So what I found out from being there is that so many differences, because a lot of times if... You know, one of the, the uh, uh, stereotypes for Americans from, in, uh, uh, from Europe and one of the stereotypes about French in America is what? They're rude. They're rude people. When in actuality, they're not very rude at all. In actuality, everywhere we went in France, they loved Americans. They thought it was great. We had random French people rolling up on us just wanting to talk English. They didn't care at all that we were American. But because we, here's just two different... Things at a dinner party, two different things that revolve around food, and they're completely different, and they're interpreted a completely different way. And now you mix that in, right? So you're going from Jewish culture in Jerusalem to 300 miles away, and you're, now you're going to Antioch, Greek culture, and Roman culture. And so Jupiter was wildly and, and widely worshipped around there. Jupiter was oftentimes looked at by the Romans as being the supreme god, the most powerful god. And it wasn't very many miles from there that there was a huge temple. And so these are, these are the Hellenists. This is what they're getting saved from. This is what they're coming out of, the, the animal sacrifice, the, the radically grotesque animal sacrifice, wiping blood on yourself and these things, the, the pedophilia, the, the uh, prostitution you know, from the temple. All, they're coming out of that worship style. So even though we don't have specifics on what the church in Antioch was like, it's most likely they were having problems because every church has problems, every culture has problems, and there's a million things that have to happen. So who do you want to send to a church that, like that? Do you want to send a guy that's going to come up there and be like, look, all of you are wrong. Lay off the Jupiter stuff, stop it, blah, blah, blah. There's going to be a million things that he could observe. You eat wrong, you greet wrong, you greet too much, you greet too little. 
I don't like this, I don't like that, why are you having wine with your dinner? You know, there could be a million different things that he could have observed. But Barnabas went up there and he observed the grace of God among them. The charis, it just means favor or kindness. That's what he observed. He observed the fact that God was kind and working and had favor for them. How would you observe that? Well, we have all sorts of verses, right? We have, by grace you've been saved. In Acts chapter 20, if you want to flip over there, it's a, it's a little out of context. Paul is uh, on his way to Jeru- or, excuse me, um, Rome, and he's, in, he's trying to encourage the elders that are in Ephesus. And so he pulls them aside. This is one of my favorite passages. I actually printed out one of the verses and stuck it in the, the resource room for the deacons. But it says there in verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of grace. And he goes down in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, he says this. He says, this is the gospel of grace. The the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he did, where he came from, from heaven to earth, the sacrifice that he made, it was all out of grace. It was out of kindness, out of favor to human beings. In verse 32, he says this, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. It's the word of grace that builds up. It's the word of kindness and favor of God that gives an inheritance. It's, it's, a, it's an adherence to that. So when he comes in on the scene... And he observes grace. He observes that it's God's favor that built this church. It's God's favor for humans. Isn't it? Even in Romans chapter 12, we're told, we are told that every individual receives a gift of grace. And that gift of grace is that person's spiritual giftings or natural talents, depending on both or how you want to look at it or whatever. That God has favor for you. So he gave you something that you can do for his kingdom. Not because he's upset and needs drones, but because he loves human beings, including you, and he wants to build something amazing. So when Barnabas shows up, he could have been critical about a million different things because he himself was a Levite, he's Jewish. They're still wrestling whether or not uh, Gentiles can be saved. They've had one instance, but it's not until chapter 15 that the official position of the church says that Gentiles can be saved. And yet here's this guy, he shows up at a Gentile church. And he's not measuring like, well, do you eat animals sacrificed to idols? Do you eat animals that are strangled? Do you do this? Do you do that? No, when he shows up and he looks at the church, he sees God is so gracious. He's so kind to these people. He's doing such a good work here. Does that mean that he ignored any kind of truth and it was just kind of this sloppy agape and nothing really matters? No, because he goes and gets Paul, right? 
I'm not saying, we don't know why he went and got Paul. Perhaps he felt inadequate. Perhaps he just thought, I need someone to tag team this, uh, this, the teaching with, whatever reason. But he goes and gets Paul, and they stay there for a year teaching and encouraging. So we're not saying that Barnabas lacked in doctrine or thought that God's word wasn't worth much. No, on the contrary, Barnabas had a great uh, passion for God's word and for truth. Remember, there's no Bible yet. <laughs> Right? They have the Old Testament. That's what they have. So why would he go get Paul? Paul's brilliant. Paul's arguing in all the synagogues. Paul's out there just preaching Christ and laying out books like Romans where you can see exactly how salvation works. He's laying out books like Galatians, which is kind of a, a mini version of Romans. He's writing letters to, to Ephesus and all these different places with this uh, huge doctrinal um, emphasis on how to walk with Jesus. So we're not making any kind of case that, that Barnabas as an encourager somehow had no passion for truth or didn't care about any of that. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying that Barnabas, in his core being, was an encouraging person. And as a habit, when he looked at things that were going on around him, did not do it with a critical eye to condemn or try to make outward changes, but instead did it with a love for humans, with a love for what God is doing. And kind of like we mentioned last week, this is what the church of Jesus Christ needs. Yes, we need doctrine. Yes, we need Bible teachers. Yes, we need worship leaders. Yes, we need all those things. All the, all the people, all the gifts, administration, gifts of giving, all the things that are, lifted in, or that are listed in chapter 12. We need those people 100%. But first, we need those people to be gracious. And, and the fruit that comes out of this is amazing. Right? Because it says there, for a whole year, verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So not only are there a lot of people being added to the Lord, but this is, it's in Antioch that they receive their nickname, that they receive their uh, stereotype. Because people around were like, these guys are like little Christ's. And it wasn't like a high five either. This isn't like, hey, you guys are like Jesus. This is really great. It was a mockery. It was like, yeah, you guys walk around like you're little Christ. But they were known for that. The fruit of Barnabas' ministry wasn't that it became this like radically sinful church and crazy things happened. No, the fruit of Barnabas' gracious ministry was that people walked with the Lord and people around them, uh, or I should say they walked with the Lord so much so that people around them noticed and said, you're like little Jesus. And the church needs that. And this, here's how Barnabas went about it. Let's check it out. It says here in verse 22, or excuse me, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So number one, there was gladness generated in him. Now this is interesting because the word grace is charis, right? But the word um, uh, glad is kero. It's the same root word. So when he observes God's charis, he became kero. <laughs> Does that make sense? So when he saw what God was doing, the generosity and, the, and, and uh, the, the gifting and the moving and everything that God was doing, the salvation, his response was a very similar response that he had grace. He, he rejoiced. He was glad about it. He didn't get mad about it. Have you ever, have you ever I'm, I'm sure we haven't here, but have you ever been like upset that someone was doing something that you didn't want them to do at church? Has that ever happened? 
where you think like, that person should not watch that movie. That person should not be there. That person should not be doing that, and that person should not be doing that. And maybe they should or shouldn't. I mean, that's not for, that's not for, for me to say. I'm not up here to like, make rules or something like that. But my point is, when he saw God's favor in people's life, when he saw their gifting, when he saw that God was merciful to them, when he saw that God was kind to them, he didn't get angry. He was glad for it. His heart rejoiced in it. He could see this conglomerate of people, these Jupiter worshipers, these idolatrous, lost people, saved, working through their own salvation with fear and trembling, trying to get things figured out, and he was just like, this is the best ever. What God is doing here is amazing. So number one, he was glad. He was happy to see the grace of God. And if we find in our hearts that we're not happy when we see God's favor on people's lives, we need to repent. We genuinely need to repent because that's, that's not love. That's not, that's not kindness. That's not what God's doing. Again, at no time are we saying that, there's no, that we, we deviate from truth or that we say, hey, you know, just do what you want to do. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. There are definitely times where, uh, you know, somebody may need to be uh, corrected. I, I knew a guy years and years ago down in California who got saved, and he um, uh, would uh, graffiti like Jesus loves you on stuff. And so we had a time, I was like, ah, you probably don't want to do that because that's something stuff. They're probably not suing. It's against the law. you like, go to jail. Go to jail because you say Jesus is Lord. Don't go to jail because you spray paint it on someone's stuff. Like, I'd be pretty upset, too, if I came out of my house and there was Jesus. Even right now, I'd be upset. I'd be like, I'm all, yeah, amen, good message, but why did you graffiti on my house? So there's definitely times to, like, you want to come along with brethren or some brother or sister lovingly comes along with you and says, hey, like, I appreciate that passion, but that we don't want to do that because the Word says we should obey the law. The Word says that we should respect other people's property. So, so we're never saying that there's not a place for truth, but we're saying that that place for truth comes from a place that rejoices in the fact that God is doing something great. And that's what made Barnabas great. That's what made him a noteworthy person. It's what made the Holy Spirit actually one of the few people in the Scriptures, like maybe Jesus and him, his, the, the Holy Spirit says of him, he was a good man. You ever think about that? I'm pretty sure, I, I didn't actually go back and check, I'm pretty sure Barnabas is the only person in the Bible outside of Jesus who's referenced as good. And the only reason he was good is very similar to what Paul said. There's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh, save Christ and him crucified. Because what is Barnabas doing? He's walking in the Spirit. He's receiving from the Holy Spirit. That, that's all he's doing. So as we go on here, he was glad. There's a genuine response from his heart, which, which is the idea of an internal response, not just an external response. Uh, self-control, but he has an internal response from the, his heart that he's excited and he's glad for what God is doing. And then he exhorted them all to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, the word exalted, or excuse me, exhorted here is again a derivative of paraklesis and, para, and parakitos, and that is parakaleo. He is doing what he is. Does that make sense? He, the Holy Spirit is the helper. Barnabas is full of the Holy Spirit and is nicknamed the comforter, the son of encouragement, right? And now he is doing the very thing that he is. He is encouraging and exhorting. There's no fakeness in Barnabas. I mean, I'm not saying he never sinned. I'm not saying he didn't deal with pride. I'm not saying any of that. But the mode of his life, the arching theme of his life is selflessness, 
is giving away, is encouraging, is kindness, is moving forward. That's the mode of his life. So much so that the Holy Spirit takes note through Luke and writes about this guy saying that's who he is and that's what he's doing. So it's pretty encouraging. It's encouraging because it's not very complicated of how he gets there, and we'll talk more about that. But here he is, he's exhorting, literally coming alongside or bringing alongside people to himself. He's not pushing down on them. He's not oppressing them. I'll tell you what, guilt and shame are amazing motivators, aren't they? They can be, you can motivate a lot of people to do a lot of things that they should do with guilt and shame, can't you? Even like, have you ever been like looking at your kid or your nephew or something? You're like, hey, come give me a hug. And they're like, and then you do this. And what do they do? Oh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. As an adult, we manipulated a kid's emotions to get a hug with guilt. Isn't that weird? And, and, and sometimes we'll, we'll try to guilt people all the time into doing stuff. Well, you, you really should do this. Nine out of ten doctors say, blah, 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 blah. You know, we can, we can guilt and shame people into all sorts of things. And guilt and shame can be a real leadership style. The unfortunate part of guilt and shame as a leadership style is it leads to anxiety and anger in the end because people realize it and then they finally run out of guilt and the only thing that's left after guilt's gone is anger because they realize that they've been pushed and they've been manipulated and it leads to destruction. It's a bad deal. So we don't want to move it that way. But he's bringing people along. He's not yelling down at them. He's not hurting them. He's bringing them alongside. That's what exhorted means, to come alongside. And, and he says, them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, steadfast purpose, some other translations probably might say with purpose of heart. Does anybody have a translation that says that, purpose of heart? Or some even say like a steadfast heart. Because the word steadfast in the ESV is translated steadfast to try to make um, some clarity. But really, with the, the literal translation is with a purposed heart. Because the, the, the word steadfast is actually cardia where we get our words like cardiologist, cardiac arrest, you know, that kind of stuff. So the idea is he comes alongside and he's encouraging them to stay close to Jesus from their hearts. Now, in our society, from the heart means something a little different, right? Because kind of the whole like MO and, um, I don't know, societal move, TV, commercials, right, is this kind of this idea, like, even remember, remember the Marlboro Man? You know, probably have to be old for that. Remember when you could advertise cigarettes in the Marlboro Man? Like, where do you see the Marlboro Man? He's on, he's on a billboard. He's, like, rough and tumble. He's on a horse with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And the, and the, and the idea is, like, freedom and manliness and just, you just ride out on the open range. And I don't know what you do with the cigarette butt out there, but, you know, you just, it's just this freedom thing that you do. Right? And, that's, and that's what so much like, advertising is about. It's just, we just go where your heart leads you. you just, and so how many movies are about that? And somehow in the movies it always works out, right? Like somebody goes and does something amazing and everybody else is like, no, you'll never do it. And they're like, no, bro, I've got to follow my heart. I'll be successful. And then in the end everybody's like, oh, didn't see that coming and they're super successful. Yeah, that's the exception, not the rule in reality. It's wonderful in Hollywood. So it's not this idea that you just follow your heart and what the heart wants, the heart gets. That's actually satanic. Aleister Crowley, the writer of the quote, Satanic Bible, said the whole of the law is to do as thou wilt. 
it really comes down to this idea to do what I want, to exercise my rights, to put myself in God's place. And that's what our society is just putting, just smearing everywhere, that that's where happiness lies. But this is something different. Just like Paul said in, in, when he writes to the Ephesians and he says to them, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. There in Ephesians 1, uh, 19 or 20. He says, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of your calling, the inheritance among the saints, and the power of God that works in your heart. He says, I'm praying that you would know that stuff from, with the eyes of your heart. And the idea of this steadfast heart is that from the very core... From the very center, deepest part of my soul, I'm staying close to Jesus. But see, that does not mean emotionally, per se. Emotions follow. Because our whole, again, back to society, everything we're told every day in every form of media that we have that's from this world is all saying I need to follow my heart. But Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So when I'm with steadfast heart, when I'm sticking to the Lord, my job is not to go where my heart wants to go. My job is, in fact, to make, engage the will and follow Jesus, and the heart will follow. And that's, that's like, honestly, without trying to sound patronizing, that's a long-lost art. And it seems like the farther we get along in this society, the, the, the less we see people that are willing to say no to themselves that are willing to say, no, I have the freedom. I've been set free from my sin and myself to follow Jesus. And that's what Jesus is calling for followers. That's what a guy like Barnabas had to be. Barnabas didn't just get zapped one day. It wasn't like he got saved, and then all of a sudden one day the Holy Spirit just said, you'll never sin again, and you'll always think good about people, and you're just going to have a joyful heart all the time. That's not very often how the Holy Spirit works in a life. So much so, it's first. In fact, the Scripture says, we might be familiar with the Scripture tells us to guard our hearts. And a lot of times we use that to say, like, don't watch this or don't listen to that or whatever. And that's fine. There's some wisdom in that. But it literally means to century your heart. The point is this. Where the Scripture tells us to guard our heart, it's not that I'm guarding my heart from the outside. It's that I'm guarding myself, my soul, from what comes out of it. Does that make sense? I'm guarding against my heart. I'm not guarding it to like keep things out of it. Although there's there's both there's a, an argument for both of those things in other places. See, so much of what we fill our hearts with will dictate what we act like, and so much of what comes out of our heart, if we listen to it, it's it's venom, and it's, it's not good. So he's telling them, he's coming along, bringing them alongside, and he says, with a with a purposed heart, a made up heart, a made up mind, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stick close to Jesus. And Jesus said something about this too. If you wouldn't mind turning to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, in verse 9, he says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So as the Father agapes me. So the, the God the Father... The love that God the Father has for God the Son, Jesus, that perfect, never-ending, never-wavering love, he says, that's the love that I have for you. So Jesus says, I have a perfect, never-ending, always wanting the best, moral love for you. Okay? Then he goes on, and he says there, abide in my love. Abide just means to stay close, to stay with my love. 
Verse 10 gets interesting. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, for years, and a lot of it was just because of how I was raised, as a, I wasn't raised as a Christian, but as I was discipled as a Christian, I got saved when I was 16, and as I was discipled, and I can't say if somebody taught me this or if I just came to my own warped conclusion or whatever, but in verse 10, for years and years, perhaps decades, I read this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. And, I would, and in my mind, it read this way, if I obey God, he loves me. And so then the inverse comes out, if I don't, then he doesn't. And all of a sudden, you, you get this works-based love. And, and really, a meritist type of love, meaning you, de- you demonstrate merit and therefore you receive love, that's pretty much how we operate in the, in the plane of the mortal, isn't it? If someone treats you like poo, do you continue to let them do that and then love them? No, your best friend is your best friend because there was merit, right? Even if you had to work through things and you had difficulties and all these things, your friends are your friends because they have merit to you. I'm not putting that system down. I'm not saying that we should reject everybody who has merit to us and then instead find the people that that treat us the worst and go hang out with them. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we operate on a merit system for almost every single thing in our lives, don't we? Your grades are a merit system. You, you grew up, whether homeschool or public school, trying to get good grades in the hopes of college or tech school or whatever. Merit decided who you were at school. Merit decided if you went on certain field trips. Merit decided if you got into certain special classes. Merit decides our relationships very often, for our closest relationships. So I think sometimes it can be very difficult for us to realize it's outside of our experience that God does not relate to us on the basis of merit. Just think about that for a second. God doesn't love you because he merits it. That's a false teaching, because you merit it. He doesn't love you because you've earned it. He doesn't love you because you've done enough. He doesn't love you because you served enough. He doesn't love you because you didn't watch naughty TV shows. He doesn't love you for any of that. He loves you because he is love. And his love is that of a moral love that never ends. So Jesus says here, I love you the way the Father loves me. I don't know what the love, that's outside of my experience. I don't know what God's love is for a son. It seems like it would be pretty strong. It's eternal. But he says, I love you that way. But then he makes this statement. This is maybe where it gets a little weird because he says, I want you to abide in my love. I want you to stay in my love. And then he says, the way you stay in my love. He doesn't say the way you make me love you. He says, the way that you stay in my love is you do what I tell you to do. And the inverse is not true. And think of it this way. I remember one time, sorry, Chloe. Chloe was like eight years old. And I can't remember, we had like a Nintendo or something like that. And I was like, hey, you know, it's time to call it quits on the Nintendo. And, And so she was not excited about that decision. And I remember her going to her bed, and later on I went in there, and, uh, and she said, she goes, I want to run away, run away from home. And because I'm a compassionate father, I said, would you like me to pack your bag? And she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, you know, do you want like the stick thing with like the knapsack on the back? Is that, because we can go, what do you... What do you want? We can get some cereal in there. Milk won't last, but you know, we can probably get, I think we have like a Fig Newton or something we can throw in there. 
should I pack your bags for you? And she was like, I, I don't know. And I said, well, here's the thing, Chloe. Your mom and I, we love you a lot. And we don't want you to leave. And, and because I have a job as your dad, and my job is to protect you. That's my whole job. That's the reason at this point, primarily, I'm on this planet, is to protect you and to help you to grow up. And, but if you leave where I live and you go off where I can't find you, I can't do that. I can't bless you. I can't give you Christmas presents. I can't feed you. I can't protect you. I can't do any of that. You just leave and you go do your thing. And it's a bad world out there. It's a bad world for eight-year-old girls walking down the street. And so I just want you to stay. And she says, oh, okay, I'll stay. I said, oh, good. This is kind of a ruse. I wasn't really going to let you go. But, you know, this, but that's the thing. That's how God's love works. He always loves you. You know, David writes this absolutely glorious psalm. And he says, Behold, if I should take the wings of the morning and the wings of a dove and fly into the sunset, he says, you're there. He says, if I were to make my bed in Sheol in the grave, he says, you're there. He says, even when it's dark, it's like light to you. See, there's never a place where God's love, where he stops loving us. There's never a place where he stops seeing us or stops trying to bless us or everything becomes punitive and he's naughty because that's how the whole world system works and that's the only thing we know until we find Christ. It's also how every other major religion works, including Judaism to an extent. And he says, I want you, you have to stick close to me. You need to listen to what I say to you if you're going to abide in my love. If we run from Jesus, he doesn't stop loving us. But we remove ourselves from the benefit of that love in a big way. Does that make sense? If Jesus comes along and says, I created everything, this is bad. And we say, well, shoot, I'm like 40 years old. I got a like three and a half pound brain. I'm pretty smart. I say that's good. Who's right? Who's right? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, we do that all the time as humans, don't we? God says it's really bad if you treat someone rudely. And we're like, eh, I think it's good. It feels good. It's got to be good. It's really bad to fill your head with X. And we're like, no, it feels pretty good. I'm into that. I'm going to keep doing that. It's really bad. There's all sorts of things where we just go, no, it's not true. That's why every sin begins with unbelief. Every sin begins with you're wrong. God of the universe. You're wrong on this one. And I'm right on this one. And so we, 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 all of a sudden, God can't bless us in that area, can he? If he's saying, do X, I have this great thing for you, it's this. And we say no, well, then there's not going to be blessing in that, is there? There's going to be death in that. So he says, he even tells us why he says this. If we look back down in verse 11, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, verse 11, he says this, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, the reason that Jesus wants them, us to obey him is so that we can have joy. Again, that's outside of our experience because we can't say that necessarily. I suppose you could make an argument. You could say that to your kids. You need to obey me to have joy. But like outside of that relationship, there's no relationship in the world where you're like, if you obey me, you will have joy. And that's, that's weird. That's like fascism or something. But so it's, you, know, you see what I'm saying? But that's the relation of God because he's good and he's love. And he loves us with an everlasting love. So when he comes along, he says, look, I'm telling you to obey me, not because I'm an egomaniac and I need everybody to think I'm really great, but because he says, I have the best for you. There's nothing outside of this. There's nothing better. It might feel better in the moment. The Bible even tells us that in Hebrews, right? 
Paul wrote to us and told us, look, sin is pleasurable for a season. And we can all attest to that. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Sin is always pleasurable for a season, but afterwards, it reaps death. There's consequences. So Jesus says, I'm telling you this because I want your joy to be made full. So back to Barnabas. Here's Barney, and he's there in Antioch, and he's saying, hey, look, I want you guys, this is, this is the basis of all his encouragement, stick to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. There's millions of types of advice that we can give people, many times unsolicited and maybe unneeded. There's many types of advice. We can give marital advice. We can give relational advice. We can give financial advice. We can give auto repair advice. We can give construction advice. We can advise people all the time. But the basis of that advice has to be stick to Jesus. So if you tell somebody, you probably don't want to write graffiti that Jesus loves you on people's stuff. They're not going to receive that. You're saying that because you're saying stick to Jesus. Listen to what God has for you. The reason that Barnabas is a noteworthy and the right guy for the job is because he just went and he encouraged people. He brought them alongside and said, God has great things for you. That may not be what you want to do. And then he goes and he gets Paul, and for a year, they're just sitting there encouraging people, and great things begin to occur. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose, that their heart would remain close to the Lord, that they would be those making decisions every day and allowing the heart to follow to stay close to the Lord. Verse 24, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So the, the word for there, just like very often, is the word because or since. He did those things. He exhorted the way he did. He observed the way he did. He exhorted what he did because he was a good man. And that might make us cringe. That might make us go, oh, I don't know. Jesus said there's not one good. Only God is good. So I don't, he's not interrupting Jesus or he's not disagreeing with Jesus here. He's not. The point is that the arch, the, the arc of this guy's life was that he had God's goodness in him. Because when you read this, when you read what's going on, this is the Holy Spirit, right? In fact, it says that. He was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit. So how did Barnabas become Barnabas? He listened to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit coached him. He let the Holy Spirit change him. He took risks based on what God called him to do. Hey, Barnabas, want to go to a heathen church 300 miles away? Heck yes, I do. Let's do this thing jump on a boat, walk for 300 miles, however he got there. He was available. He moved forward. He listened. You know, um, the first portion there in Galatians chapter 5 of the, of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I, I wrote down here, um, the, just copied from the New Living Translation, because some, sometimes the, some of the uh, verbiage around it can be a little bit confusing about the, that 1 Corinthians uh, 13, the famous love chapter. But when God is describing love to humans, this is the new living, this is what he says. He says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice 
about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And I think when reading this, the temptation, the temptation is to make a list out of it. And to say, okay, well, I'm not jealous usually, but once in a while I'm proud, so I better, I better work on that. Well, I'm, I definitely don't rejoice when there's no justice, but, but sometimes, sometimes I, I kind of give up on people, or sometimes I'm kind of irritable. And so when we look at it like a list, what happens is we begin to compare love to ourselves, and then we try to act it out. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when it's a list for us, when we, we start to get irritated and vocalize our irritation, we go, oh, that's not what love does. I'm going to walk in love. And there's a truth to that. That's good, right? Because we don't want to just say anything that comes to our mind. We don't want to treat people poorly. But stopping it at my mouth or my facial expressions or my hand gestures, right? That's not really love because I'm still irritated. It's a, it's a good start, as it were. It's an exercise. But love doesn't actually even want to give rude hand gestures. Love doesn't get irritated. So I, I'm not trying to make anybody an offender for a word, but a lot of times what it says, just put your name in there. James is kind. Don't put your name in there because you're not. We're just not. Because we're sinful. So trying to put my name in there or trying to make a list out of it and like, I'm this, I'm that, and I could No, no, no. This is the fruit of the Spirit of God. We can't do this in ourselves. I don't know. Some of these are incredible. For, for me personally, is not irritated is like the coup de gras. Because I, I, without supernatural intervention, I will never be able to say, James is not irritated. Because James gets irritated. Because James is sinful. So if James is getting irritated, guess what James is not? Love. See, what this demonstration, what this shows us is not here's things to work on. It's here's things you can never do. This is what you can never be outside of Christ. Again, it's great to not be irritated on the outside, and we should practice that. But that's not the goal. The end game of Christianity is not a whitewashed tomb, hypocrisy. The end, the end game of Christianity is a changed heart, is a washed soul. It's to actually be in the roundabout when somebody's going the wrong way or very slowly or waiting in the lane where they don't actually have to yield and saying, praise God. From the heart. Amen. I'm glad I get to stop for absolutely no reason. Maybe God's keeping me from an accident. That's what Tam says. And then James is like, love is not irritated. I'm not... <laughs> Tam's the spiritual one in the relationship. But to, to truly from the heart, to, as a reaction, walk in that. And we can't do it, can we? We can't. You cannot control your reactions or your thoughts. You can only control what you do with them. 
So controlling the reactions and thoughts that you have that are of the flesh and giving those to Christ, taking them captive, as it were, from 1 Corinthians 10, these are the activities that the Christian engages in, allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse the heart and to be changed supernaturally in the heart. God is working in us. He's pouring out His Spirit through us. And he's washing us. So when Jesus, back in John 15, when Barnabas in Acts 11 are saying, with your heart, with everything that you have, stick close to Christ. The remedy, the change is coming from the activity. The, the activity is its own culmination of a changed heart. Does that make sense? The exercising of the command is the fulfillment of the joy. And it is the open door to the, the, the Spirit of God in our hearts where we actually begin to, to experience supernatural change. So many times, and I think I even said this last week, it's kind of becoming a theme, and I don't want to be repetitive, but so many times we're just sitting around waiting for God to zap us, entertaining our thoughts that we shouldn't entertain, watching the crap we shouldn't watch, doing all those things. That's what we're doing. And we're just waiting for God someday to just make me not want to watch that. Some guys not want to listen to that. Someday he's going to make me a nice person. I'm just going to wake up in the morning, have a devotion, and Holy Spirit power, I'm nice now. <laughs> Meanwhile, I entertain all the thoughts. I'm just someday, I'm never going to fear. I'm never going to judge. I'm never going to whatever. Meanwhile, entertaining all the thoughts, thinking, maybe, hoping, some of us so much, hoping this is the day I wake up and I get zapped. And God just saying, no, you have to abide with me. You have to stick with me. Someday maybe I won't be covetous. You have to deal with those thoughts. You have to let the Holy Spirit cleanse. You have to have that worked out of you. And he's, he's given us a way to do it. And it's by clinging to the Lord. Barnabas is such an incredible guy because he didn't just minister the letter. You know, Paul's interesting. Last verse here in 2 Corinthians, he writes about this. This ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this. And in verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence, this is a little bit, we're kind of jumping into a thought. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Check this out. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." Indeed, in this case, that which once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more uh, will that, excuse me, will what is permanent have glory. And we have such a hope. The point he's making, he's saying, look, it's interesting because he calls the old covenant a ministry of death, the letter that kills, the ministry that has no glory at all anymore, and he calls the new covenant, that of being led by the Spirit and blessed by the Spirit and changed by the Spirit, that which will surpass in glory. Christianity is not about following the law. We're dead to the law. 
The law is no place for us to find righteousness. Christianity is about listening to and walking with the Holy Spirit, which leads to life. But I love that and want to point out that starkness. The letter kills. If Barnabas had shown up with the letter, he would have killed the church. Just the laws, just the outward, what you should do. But instead, he came with the Spirit and with grace and as an encourager. So we have, a, we have a great and a mighty God, and he's, he's gifted each one of us in different ways to be part of something great that he's doing. But all that's going to come through his Holy Spirit. It's all going to come through what he's doing. It's all going to come through his grace. But let's be Barnabas. Let's be Barnabas to the people at our church, to the people at the uh, SIDS checkout, at the gas station, everywhere we go, to our family members. Let's be Barnabases. Let's be encouragers. Let's be those that are, can share the truth in love, but, but out of a place of saying, come with me to follow Jesus. And that's going to bear real fruit, which I think is what we want to do, right? Isn't that kind of the goal here? We're not looking to uh, you know, end alcohol addiction and stop smoking and all that. Those things are great. But we're here to, to introduce people to the divine, to a new nature, to a, a change that happens not just on a cellular level, but on a soulish, eternal level. Well, the, the gospel that we have, the good news that we have, is it, it transcends any organic anything on this earth. And, and the, we have uh, the ability to help people find that, and we should take advantage of it. So, um, Luke wanted me to mention there's a lunch afterwards. I, I don't know if that got uh, announced or not. So you're welcome to join us for lunch. And uh, we're going to pray. If you'd like to come up for prayer, feel free. Uh, but God has great things for you. And uh, don't lose sight of that this week. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Lord, thank you for examples like Barnabas, but even more so, thank you for the Holy Spirit that can lead us and guide us and change us. Lord, we just confess to you that uh, we don't always do what we ought to do, but we want to. Lord, we don't always abide in your love, but we want to. Lord, we don't always do what you say to do, but we want to. We're torn. And so we just ask that you would continue to work in our hearts, continue to bring us around to tough decisions, or that you would bring about a brokenness in our hearts for the things that we ignore you in. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work. We want to give you permission to take our lives and to do what you will with them. Lord, when we resist, when we jump off the altar, when we say no to you, we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy upon us and you would continue to work in us. Lord, thank you for your great and your exceeding precious promises that give us hope for what you have for us. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. We pray, Lord, that we would be your ambassadors in our community and that we would grow in you this week. That we would be a little bit more like Jesus next Sunday than we were this Sunday. Thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.